Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. On the ground in Gaza, I speak to the woman leading the UN humanitarian efforts there about the ever-worsening situation. Then, a turning point for democracy in 2024. My conversation with Yale historian Timothy Snyder, author of On Tyranny, tells me about his hopes and fears for the year ahead. Also, it ain't over till it's over. Rock star Lenny Kravitz on being shortlisted for an Oscar, having a new album and turning 60. Finally, a groundbreaking treatment. Nobel laureate Jennifer Doudna tells Walter Isaacson how CRISPR is revolutionizing the treatment of diseases like sickle cell anemia. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Fears of a wider war are growing in the Middle East. Today, a U.S. strike in Baghdad on a pro-Iranian militia leader. Yesterday, two blasts in Iran killed at least 80 people and injured nearly 300 others near the grave of the military commander, Qasem Soleimani. And the day before, a senior Hamas figure was killed in an airstrike on a building in Beirut. These fears have been growing ever since October 7th, when the brutal attack by Hamas inside Israel triggered Israel's massive counteroffensive inside Gaza. More than 22,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, according to the health ministry in Gaza. And right now, both the IDF and Hamas say the current fighting is in the slum city of Khan Yunis, a place my next guest has literally just left. Gemma Connell is the Gaza team leader for the UN's humanitarian office known as OCHA. And I reached her in Gaza near the Egyptian border. Gemma Connell, welcome to the program from Gaza. Thank you so much for having me, Christiane. You have been there for the better part of a month now consistently. What is it like? We hear that no place is safe. That's what international humanitarians say. That is so difficult just to survive, much less to try to help those who are in need of help. What is it actually like for you? Well, Christian, again, I always say what it's like for me is not the story. It's what it is for the people who are living everywhere around me. And just this afternoon, as I came home, I saw all of the people who have been fleeing south 
uh, in these past days and just this evening we had more people arrive to the area just outside our guest house where they're setting up makeshift tents and shelters in order to try and survive but every night we hear the shelling every night uh, we hear the gunfire and there are many days when it's very close there was one day Christiane, when I was about to head out on a convoy and there was naval gunfire literally just 50 to 100 meters away from us and the cars as we moved out. So to give you a sense, that's what every day is like for me. And I am one of the most protected people in Gaza. And so when we say there is no safe place, there truly is no safe place in Gaza. And you are right now, I believe, uh, near Rafa, which is meant to be the place where people can come in and out, humanitarians and those who have permission uh, to leave. So I, I get what you're saying. I want to play a little bit of a voice message, a video message you posted on Twitter X just this week when there had been uh, people killed actually in the hospital that you were at. So let me just play a little bit of it. Five people were killed here, including a five-day-old child. No child in the world should be killed, let alone one sheltering under the emblem of a humanitarian organization. This war has to end. You can see just behind me the diapers. This was a space where babies were living. This is a space where children were living. You can see on the floor the blood. And it is very graphic. We see your camera or the camera pan down and, and reveal that. What else are you seeing? And you get very passionate. You, you go on about how it's a shame for the world and how this war must stop. I'm curious as to how you mix your emotions with your professional duty as a UNer. Christiane, the two for me go together because I wouldn't do this work if I wasn't emotional about it. As a humanitarian, it's my job to care for people. So what I see here every day and what I hear here every day, it's my job to communicate that back to the world. And the first message that every single person that I have met in the month that I have been here in Gaza, the first message they give me is that the war must end. I met a family uh, of women, their entire family killed except for five women. And one of them turned and looked at me, her pregnant daughter had been killed and she said, we don't need food, we don't need water, we need an end to this war. And so for me, that's what I communicate back every day. Uh, Christiane, I have met children, I have watched children die, I have met a baby who was born in the street because his mother couldn't get to the hospital because of ground forces. That baby died and that family had been trying to have that baby for years. And any person in the world knows how difficult that journey is to have a child to then have it die in the street. And so we must be emotional about this, to be honest, because that's our humanity. And for me, my biggest fear is that the world doesn't see the people of Gaza as the humans that they are. And yet every day, that's exactly what I see, is the humans of Gaza and the devastating and catastrophic toll of this war on humans. It is an incredibly tragic and devastating situation, as you as you point out, and as we see daily uh, from the reports and the pictures uh, of what's unraveling there. And we've reached out to the IDF about this particular issue. But I want to also ask you then, because in the weeks that have passed, we've heard from the UN and others that they may say they don't need food and they want an end to the war. Of course, they want an end to the war. But we've heard that, you know, perhaps half Gaza is in risk of famine. People don't actually have enough fresh water, enough food. What are you hearing and what are you able to deliver? 
No, absolutely. When the women told me that it wasn't because they didn't need it, it was because they felt the only thing that could end their suffering is an end to the war. But Christiane, the suffering is everywhere. I mean, absolutely everywhere that I have been. And I have been in the south of the Gaza Strip. I have been up to Gaza City. And when you cross the checkpoint into the north of Gaza, I have never in my humanitarian career seen the level of suffering, desperation and deprivation that the people who are across that checkpoint are suffering. It has driven people to their absolute limit. No food, no water, very little medical supplies. That's what we see in the north and here in the south where people continue to arrive just this evening as I left the office to the guest house, there were still hundreds of people pouring in to Rafa from the middle area where this new offensive is taking place, carrying whatever belongings they have left. Bearing in mind, most people have now been displaced, not once, not twice, but six or seven times. And the people here have nothing as well. And I met with families who are sharing shoes and socks because they don't have those. It's the middle of winter now and the children are exposed. I've met with families who don't have the money to try and put a shelter over their children's head. Uh, we see children who are out in the open with nothing. I've met with mothers who are devastated because they cannot provide their children with diapers. And I've met with women who can't access sanitary pads. So when we say that the suffering is everywhere, it is absolutely everywhere that I look. Can I ask you specifically, I don't know whether you can answer this, it's potentially an UNRWA situation, but you are the UN as well. Um, UNRWA has complained that there's just too much obstacles to getting trucks of, of aid in. The IDF has responded by public tweeting saying that you can't keep avoiding the facts. There is no collective punishment. Two crossings are open. You said you could transfer 200 trucks a day in Karem Shalom, yet you're not even scraping 100 over the last 80 days. We've adjusted ourselves. All you've been doing is stalling. This is a weird conversation to be having over humanitarian aid. But are you stalling? Is the UN stalling or why aren't the required number of trucks coming in? It is a very weird conversation, let alone one to be having over Twitter when what we're talking about is the fate of more than 2.2 million people in the Gaza Strip who are in desperate need. And we are not stalling, Christiane. I, the fact that all of us here wake up every day trying to get assistance out is proof positive of the fact that we are not stalling. There are many challenges. The trucks that come from Egypt go through multiple screenings. Rafa, as you know, was never designed to be a goods crossing. The screening that is done at Karim Shalom is a good step forward, but no crossing from Israel is actually open for the delivery of goods through Israel into the Gaza Strip, which, as you know, was the primary way mm -hmm. that goods came in. And we are not just talking about the humanitarian supplies. We need the commercial sector to become revived at yeah. scale for people to be able to revive their lives. We're so pleased to have you on. Gemma Connell, thank you so much from the UN's OCHA department. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Now, that crisis and others around the world is sure to affect this year, which is shaping up to be the biggest election year in history, with more than 40% of the planet's population going to the polls in countries like India, South Africa, and of course, in the United States, which promises to be a Trump-Biden rerun. Biden says democracy itself is on the ballot this year, while former President Trump battles states that have already removed him from their ballots. Who better to break down exactly what's at stake in these global elections and the two raging wars that threaten to dominate than Yale historian and author of On Tyranny, Timothy Snyder. Timothy Snyder, welcome back to our program. I'm very glad to be with you. So we want to start the new year with some of your historical perspective and wisdom. Everybody is talking about how this next year, people around the world are going to go to elections. They're incredibly important elections. I guess, I guess potentially the United States is the most important election. You tell me. But The Economist is calling it the biggest election year in history. How do you look at it? I I agree. I think this is a year in which probably democracy as we understand it will either continue and improve or it will tip over into something which is no longer recognizable. We have more or less real elections in India. We have more or less real elections in the U.S. We have fake elections in, in Russia. And we have a war between Russia and Ukraine, which is largely about whether democracies can survive and defend themselves. So I think people are right to think that 2024 is going to be a kind of turning point one way or the other. So let me ask you about the threat to democracy or where democracy is most challenged, as you just said, you know, on the battlefront in Ukraine. This looks to be going incredibly badly for Ukraine right now. And it's a shock, frankly. It's a shock to the system after we, the public, and we, the press, have been reporting for years that the US and Europe has been saying, for as long as it takes, we will help Ukraine defend itself. And that all seems to be thrown up in in smoke right now with the Congress, with the EU, either not or delaying crucial aid, with Russia clearly making some advances on the battlefield. What is the most important thing that needs to be done now? Just a couple of quick things in the background here. The first thing to remember is that the Ukrainians, from the beginning of the war to now, have been doing incredibly well with whatever they've been provided with. And even this last year, and even these last few months and weeks, they've been extracting extraordinary Russian casualties, and they've been doing a very good job at stopping these huge Russian barrages of missiles 
and drones. They're the reliable piece in all of this. We're the unreliable piece. And as you say, that's the shocking part. It's shocking not just because the Ukrainians are defending democracy and the rule of law. It's also shocking because the people who oppose democracy and the rule of law, not only in Moscow, but also in Beijing and elsewhere, are looking very carefully on what happens. So what needs to happen is, from our point of view, is actually very simple. We need to unblock the aid for Ukraine, which will allow the Ukrainians to defend themselves and win this war. The ironic thing here is that this would be very easy for us. It's just not very much money from our point of view. The weapons that we send are largely weapons we wouldn't use anyway and would have to decommission. We won't even notice whether we do this or not um, from, from the point of view of domestic politics, but it will change the history of the world. That's the striking thing at the beginning of 2024. So basically you're, you're alluding, I think, to uh, political gamesmanship in Congress. And I want to know whether this affects Something very optimistic you said a year or so ago, that Russia is in retreat, China has peaked, and Ukraine is, is going to win. Would you reassess that statement, given where each of those countries are right now? If we continue, we the U.S., we the Germans, we the EU, continue to supply Ukraine, they will win this war. The narrative now is that things are going well for Russia, but things are actually going very badly for Russia. They're losing huge numbers of troops. Putin has problems at home. They can't keep this up indefinitely. The question is whether we can. And as you say, this has to do not just with Moscow, but with Beijing. If the Chinese see the Americans and the Europeans choosing to lose in Ukraine for no reason, that is certainly emboldening and certainly increases the risk dramatically of a conflict over Taiwan. Supporting Ukraine is the easy way for us to reduce the risk of a war with China. And that's one more reason why it's so befuddling that we're not doing it. So I just want to quote you. You've said and you've written the best China policy is a good Ukraine policy. So you just explained that. You've also written that Putin thinks that he has a better chance in the United States capital than he has in Kyiv. In other words, you know, he could win the war thanks to, let's me quote this, allies in Washington. Um, that's pretty serious. What are the actual implications or the facts of a Putin win in Ukraine? Well, I mean, let's let me just start with a sort of comparison. I mean, the, the war in Ukraine is something that we can very easily help them to win. I know it's we can, like but we're not, Timothy. Fire, I'm trying to, I know we can. Mm -hmm. I know we can. That's yeah. why I'm like many people so exercised about this moment. But we're not. Yeah. We are not. In fact, we're doing the opposite. And so since our leaders have told us that our democracy and the rule of the world depends on this fight, just explain, let's say, to American right. viewers what happens if we don't step up and Russia wins. He thinks he's in a good position, Putin, right now, despite right. his casualties on the ground. Well, he, he thinks that he can persuade congressional Republicans to, to, to prevent us from supporting Ukraine long enough for Trump to win. It's important that Russia's only hope is really an American hope. He's depending upon Americans to win this war. If we let him win this war, then we will have shown that people who are willing to risk their lives for democracy will be betrayed. We will have shown that there's really no ethical com commitment to democracy from us or around the world. And without that ethical commitment, it's very unlikely that the people 
and ultimately democracy depends on people, will be taking risks anywhere for it. So it will be very dark for democracy around the world if we let Ukrainians lose. And I want to pick up on what you just said, that Putin is betting on Trump winning uh, to help him, to help him in his war effort and to create this new world that you've just outlined. What, in your opinion, is the likelihood of Trump winning, um, given everything everybody knows about him? And what is your reaction to the Supreme Court maybe taking up these state uh, moves to, 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 to ban Trump from their ballot, let's say Colorado and Maine so far? Yeah, y your point is really important. It's, it's not so much that the Russians are doing well. It's that we're doing badly and the Russians are counting on that. So how, how are we doing badly? Um, it's, it's bad that Trump might win. I think he's got a decent chance of doing so, not, not more than 50-50, but a decent chance of doing so because Americans have short memories and we're, we're thinking about present things and we're not thinking about the recent past. It's odd though that he could be on the ballot at all because it is clear, the third, the third section of the 14th Amendment makes clear that anybody who takes part in or even give, gives aid and comfort to an insurrection cannot be a candidate for any state or federal office in the US. So I think that has to be taken very seriously. We have rules about who can run and who can't run. And according to these rules, Trump can't. And the decisive part of the Supreme Court says that it takes, it pays attention to the actual language of the Constitution and the intention of those who wrote the provisions. And wh whether you're an intentionalist or you know, whether, whether you're a textualist, it's very clear that the 14th Amendment makes it impossible for, for Trump to run. So I think that's, we're at a crucial moment there too. Uh, now, going back to the effect of any future president on the U.S. global position, I recently spoke to Fiona Hill, uh, who, as you know, was very prominent uh, testifying against, you know, Trump's Russia and Ukraine policy. And she actually worked for the NSC during his presidency on Russia. And she's a major expert. And she told me that, that the current sort of sort of your coalition of forces arrayed against the United States and these, you know, con con confluent crises that the United States has has to deal with is actually bad for the US as it's, you know, as it's partaking. Just take a listen. This looks like a world with three major fires, two, you know, in fully combustible in Ukraine and in the Middle East, and one that's, you know, still simmering and smoldering, not simmer in a fire, but smoldering and looking, you know, kind of like it also uh, might be ignited in the Indo-Pacific region as well. And we have to keep an eye on all of these fronts at the same time. The United States global position is really challenged here. And she went on to say, you know, the US looks like it's being isolated by, by this coalition arrayed against it and blaming the US for all these problems. I think that's, I think that's very just. The, the United States objectively is much stronger than its rivals now. I'd say objectively, Russia and China are actually weaker now than many people have expected. Our problem is our inability to focus and our inability to recognize that our rivals can act in concert against us. We're, we're like a giant who's not paying attention to anything that's happening around. And a giant like that will eventually be tripped up and fall. Well, that is, uh, yeah, that, that's given us something to think about. But can I now just change track a little bit and ask you about how to combat 
hate, basically, hate speech, uh, positions in which, let's say, there are crises in the world and people are forced to take stands, you know, the, the pressure of social media, the cancel culture, uh, and, and, and all of that. I, I want to ask you this, because a colleague of ours just came back from Amsterdam, where she noticed as she came out of the Anne Frank house, there is a short animated film based on your book on tyranny. And it's intended for 10 to 15 year old children. And the Anne Frank Trust here in England has issued a statement saying uh, they're reaching out to young people working to provide inclusive, responsive education in deeply challenging times. This, of course, in the wake of the uh, uh, catastrophe in Israel and in Gaza. What is your reaction to how your book is being used and, and the best way to try to teach children how to have discourse and how to make decisions? I think that's a wonderful question because if we talk about democracy being threatened or we talk about power, but ultimately democracy is something that people have to want. People have to want to rule themselves, and, and ruling yourself involves being able to get along with other people. It involves being able to talk to other people, hearing their own point of view. It's something which is going to happen chiefly not in the virtual world, but in the real world. And, and that's why the advice and on tyranny begins from things like don't do what everyone else is doing. Don't obey in advance. Don't assume the institutions will protect you. You have to be able to engage yourself and hear other people if we're going to move along. It's not the presence of hate speech that troubles me so much, although it does. It's the absence of the other thing. It's the absence of engagement, of kindness, the absence of the ability to listen, which is something that we ha do have to work on, especially when we're young. Mm -hmm. So you are obviously a very renowned professor at Yale University where you teach history. And you are in the midst now of watching, maybe it's not happening at your university, but big colleges all over the US are slashing budgets for teaching humanities, liberal arts, and history. And more than half of America's states have passed laws restricting how history can be taught. Can you see a noticeable effect on students, on people, on civil society and discourse, and even, even politics? Absolutely. History is there and the humanities are there to teach us that there are other points of view, and those other points of view are interesting, that the world is rich, and that we should appreciate that richness. When you cut history in the humanities, you're left with people who think, I am always innocent and I am always right. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, you can't build civil society, you can't defend the law, and you can't have a democracy. So absolutely, we're paying the price for losing history in the humanities, and the people who are taking history in the humanities away from us are perfectly aware of what they're doing. Do you see any way back from that? Of course, of course I do. I mean, in the, in the thousands of years that we've done literature and philosophy and, and in history, there have been, it's gone up and it's gone down. We have to be aware that we need these things. We have to be aware that the technology alone isn't enough. We have to be aware that we need capacities to deal with one another. And these capacities come from the past. They come from thought. They come from books. This is an argument that can be made, an argument that can be won. Curricula can be changed one way. It can be changed another way. And I see plenty of young people who are perfectly aware of this. I see plenty of people who are aware that it's not just a matter of defending the system, it's a matter of showing what's good about the system. So yes, I do think it can be changed. Well, I'm glad to end on that note, but I'm fully aware of the challenges. And thank you so much for your experience and your wisdom and your knowledge. Thank you so much. Great pleasure, thank you.
I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. And next, something to look forward to this year. As soulful superstar Lenny Kravitz releases new music after 35 years in the business and four Grammys to boot, Kravitz is now eyeing Oscar glory as his new song Road to Freedom hits the shortlist. It was written for the acclaimed film Rustin, which tells the story of pioneering civil rights activist Bayard Rustin. Take a listen. Now, you could say the song has already earned the presidential seal of approval from Barack and Michelle Obama, whose company, Higher Ground, produced the film. And Lenny Kravitz is joining me now from Los Angeles. Welcome to the program, Lenny Kravitz. Can I start by asking? Yeah, morning. Good, well, good morning. It's evening over here around the world. Um, so it must be pretty early for you there in California. What did you know about Bayard Rustin when you first, you know, would talk to about the film and about the score? Well, here, here's the thing. Uh, I knew his name, but I did not know the story. And uh, I was actually embarrassed by that because I grew up in a family that was uh, involved in the civil rights movement. And um, I did not know his story. I did not know his involvement uh, as far as being the architect behind the March on Washington. So I knew when I got the call that this was something that was very important. If I didn't know his story, there's so many that don't. And uh, it was time that uh, Bayard Rustin was seen and heard and understood. I, I know, and ever since this film has been out, I guess a lot of people have learned that he was the man behind Martin Luther King's famous march and, and really helped to organize yeah. it. Um, what about it? How did you, you wrote the song, right? How did you, what did you feel that you had to convey right out of the box? The spirit of the movement, which, you know, the road to freedom is, is what all of these great people were on and what Bayard Russell was on. And that road continues today. I mean, we're still facing so many of the same issues in a different way, in a different time period. But uh, this road is endless. We're continually moving boundaries and walls and pushing our way through to try to get to a better world. Mm. And uh, so that, that's what I wanted to convey. Can I ask you, because reading the research for this interview, I, I was really stunned by something really important in your life, not just for you, but for, for culture itself, American culture. You are the son of a white Jewish father and a black mother with Bahamian roots. And not only that, yeah. she, your mother, went on to, to, to portray the first, I think it's the first biracial couple um, on American television in the Jeffersons. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. Yes. I mean, to think that it was 1975 
And that was the first interracial couple on primetime television um, was quite extraordinary. And the fact that she actually was married uh, to a white man, uh, which is very interesting that that was her lot to play this role, you know? And, and uh, when Norman Lear, uh, who just passed recently, uh, gave her the role, he said, um, I want to make sure that you don't mind playing this role because you're going to have to be close to this man. He's going to be, you know, kissing you and being close with you. And mm -hmm. she pulled out a picture of my father and he said, I'll see you on Monday. <laughs> it is such a good story, but it's also, it's also bittersweet. And I'm going to get into, you know, get into that in a moment, but how did that upbringing and, and that parentage affect you, not just as a person, but as a songwriter? Well, I had a very rich childhood because I was uh, able to embrace the different cultures, religions, background, uh, and uh, I felt completely open. The world was open to me. I had no understanding of boundaries, of prejudice. Uh, and so, and then at the same time, growing up in New York City uh, in the late 60s, early 70s as a, as a young child, uh, I was immersed in music and theater and art and of all kinds. And uh, it was a great education for me. I, I learned so much about music by just going out with my parents. You know, my parents could have left me at home. Uh, you know, I was a child, but they, they took me out. They wanted me to see all of this art. And uh, it, I, I was quite fortunate. It is actually extraordinary. And, and as I said in the lead-in, I mean, you've, you've had so many successes, so many awards, now uh, shortlisted for an Oscar. And yet you have complained about, I suppose, you know, a sort of racism, but maybe even within your own community, because you, you complained that like black TV award shows and the others um, didn't invite you on. Well, what do you think? Were you bemused by that? Why do you think that was the case? Um, you know, first of all, I mean, there, there are so many, uh, black people and, 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 and companies and networks that, that, that recognize what I do. But I just think that because I, uh, am rooted in rock and roll, uh, for some reason there's been this odd myth that rock and roll was white music, uh, you know, and, Obviously, we know the truth that, that, that it is not, that it was invented by black people. Mm -hmm. um, but it just wasn't as popular. And, and I think that, you know, we as black people, we, we innovate. We, we, we create so much that at times we move on from something that we've done. The same thing happened to jazz, really. At, at a certain point, you know, you'd go to jazz concerts and there were very few black people. You know, the Japanese embraced it very much. You know, you'd go to Japan and, you know, or even in the States, you know, it'd be more white people in the audience um, because we move on from what we've created on to the next. And, uh, but um, it's all good. It's all good. It's music. At the end of the day, it's music. Right, it's music. And as you correctly point out, uh, black musicians have been pioneers uh, through, through time immemorial. So I want to ask you what you thought of your friend 
I think he was your friend at one point, Jan Wenner, who was the founder of Rolling Stone, the, the Bible for, mm -hmm. for rock and, and music during, during the last century. And promoting his book, he told the New York Times now infamously that the reason all seven of his subjects are white men is that there aren't any women or artists of color, quote, articulate enough on the subject to speak about. So how did you feel and did you ever confront him about that? Um. We, as you say, we've been friends for many years, and I would, I would still call him a friend. I, I, I don't have to agree, or somebody can have a moment where they lose their mind, perhaps. <laughs> but the statement was not uh, true. It was ridiculous. Um, I don't know why he said what he said. You know, I have no idea because this is a very smart human being who created uh, a great institution. You know, you know. At one time, Rolling Stone was, you know, an amazing, amazing uh, magazine uh, with with great writers and and so forth. But uh, I do not understand that. I cannot explain that to you, other than um, it, it was completely wrong. And. Um, you know, I wonder how he feels about it today. Yeah, I mean, it's truly mystifying, frankly. Um, let me ask about yeah. your upcoming world tour. You're turning 60 in May, and you're releasing a new mm -hmm. album, Blue Electric. I see you go, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, do you want me to point that out or not point that out? Oh, no, um, I meant, no, I just meant... <laughs> It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> okay. So you've got a new album, Blue Electric Light, and you have a new single from it. Yes. And it's quite racy, Lenny Kravitz. Can I play a little bit? I don't even know if we're allowed to play the slightly please, please less, less clothed bits, but we're going to play a bit. <laughs> So faithful viewers of your music videos will want to look at the whole video because we couldn't put all the, uh, you know, the revealing shots in. But what does T mm. TK421 mean? It actually was a reference from uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie, who's one of my favorite directors, uh, Boogie Nights, mm -hmm. uh, where um, it actually is, a, is, is it's a modification to a stereo system that makes the stereo system better, uh, have more bass, better sound, louder. And so I just use it as a metaphor of making something better. And um, it's quite a hard to explain, but Paul Thomas Anderson was also referencing Star Wars uh, because TK421 was the number name of a, of a stormtrooper. Mm -hmm. So it takes a bit, a bit of time to explain, but it's kind of some, some uh, movie geek... Uh, uh, references. Can I just ask you finally, you know, you say your early uh, influences and your favorite band was the Jackson 5. Then you, you know, you yeah. moved on to Hendrix and Zeppelin and David Bowie. I'm wondering who your main influences are today and who you see to be influencing yourself. Um, I'm still into the classics. I mean, I listen to I listen to everything. I mean, I, I've been listening to a lot of John Coltrane lately and, and Miles Davis and Nina Simone and and Bob Dylan and the Stones and I mean, Rita Franklin. I mean, I love music. I love music. And uh, 
I'm continually learning um, from the masters, you know. Um, and as far as, I mean, who I've, I mean, I, I know there are people that come up to me and tell me, you know, um, how they grew on my music and learned, whether it be a Steve Lacey or uh, a Bruno Mars or, or a Miguel yeah. or whomever. Um, okay. And, you know, we're, it's beautiful. You know, the, the, if you live long enough, uh, you get to do what those did for you before, right. you know, so well, it's wonderful. We wish you good luck on the tour. Thanks for being with us. And everybody will be watching for Oscar night and the nominations. So good luck with all of it. Lenny Kravitz, thanks for being Thank with you. us. Good to speak with you. Bye-bye. Bye. And next, to a discovery that is changing the world. More than a decade ago, pioneering biochemist Jennifer Doudna co-invented CRISPR, the gene editing technology which earned her a Nobel Prize. Now, the very first treatment based on CRISPR has been approved in the UK and the United States, a landmark decision for treating sickle cell disease and for the possibilities of the rapidly advancing field. Dr. Doudna joins her biographer, I own Walter Isaacson, to discuss what her technology could mean for the future of how we live and the potential dangers also of its use or its misuse. Jennifer Doudna, welcome back to the show. Great to see you, Walter. You and your colleagues won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery and the perfection of a tool known as CRISPR that allows a molecule that has RNA and sort of a scissors, an enzyme that acts like a scissors that can edit, that can cut our DNA. The FDA has approved this for treatment of sickle cell anemia. First of all, explain to us how that would work on sickle cell anemia. Well, Walter, it's an amazing time. We're seeing a real transformation, I think, in medicine where now we can edit the actual cause of a genetic disease like sickle cell disease to provide patients with a durable cure. And in the case of sickle cell, what happens is that it's possible now to permanently turn on the production of a second protein, a protein that is called fetal hemoglobin, that can protect people that have the sickle cell gene from experiencing disease uh, uh, phenotypes. And so they basically have an opportunity to experience a long-term treatment that may ultimately be effectively a cure for this disease. It's, it's really exciting. In the book I wrote about you, The Code Breaker, I have a picture of Victoria Gray, who was the first person on which they were testing this technology uh, down in Mississippi. You went and you met with her uh, not too long ago. Tell me what that was like and what you learned about her. This is a real person getting cured of a bad disease because of a technology you created. When I met Victoria Gray, it was a truly exciting moment for me as a scientist to see the impact of research and technology on a person's life and how it can be transformative. She explained to me how, in her case, sickle cell disease had, had really controlled her life and, and it made it very difficult for her to work um, to um, to be a mom to her four kids. And now with this durable treatment with CRISPR, she's able to take back her life. She can go back to school. She's able to work. And for her, I think it's really been a, a life-changing experience. Totally life-changing, but I think it now costs close to $2 million because you have to 
extract the stem cells from the human body and then reinsert them. It's not something simple. Have you been working on a ways to bring down that cost? Well, that's right. I mean, I think, you know, for for scientists like me, it's it's a you know, it's a moment where we're both very hopeful about the future, but we also recognize how much work there is still to be done. And as you point out, the treatment right now is over two million dollars a patient. It also requires a long term treatment that involves hospitalization. And so we'd love to find ways to bring down that cost by making it easier to deliver the therapy into patients, maybe some one day not requiring hospitalization at all, but allowing a one-time injection and also making it possible to distribute this therapy more widely around the world. Do you think insurance companies are going to pay $2 million each for everybody with sickle cell? Well, Walter, it's an important question. I think we have to do the math and ask how much it costs to treat a patient over their lifetime with a chronic disease like sickle cell disease or or many other genetic disorders versus having a one and done cure for that type of disease. And I think this is a, a very important question that now has to be addressed. Well, wait, do you think it really can be done by math? I mean, what happens if the math says no, let them continue to have the disease? Well, it can't be just math, of course. It has to it has to also involve our technical and uh, societal efforts. And we're doing this through the Innovative Genomics Institute, where I work in the Bay Area to figure out how we can address this challenge technically, for one thing, and also how we can work with patient groups to help them understand the therapy, how it works, whether it's right for them, and also to advocate for lower costs and better distribution efforts. Now, the way to lower the cost, it would seem, would be just to have a pill or an injection in which this editing tool can go right into human cells where you want it to. What's the problem with getting it into human cells? Well, that's right. And and the challenge there is that CRISPR is a big molecule, and we also have to figure out how to get it right to the cells that need editing and not anywhere else. As you mentioned, The sickle cell therapy involves editing what are called blood stem cells. These are cells that produce the mature red blood cells in our bodies and live in our bone marrow. So right now, the sickle cell treatment involves what is effectively a bone marrow transplant. But we envision a day when it will be possible to provide a one-time injection that targets the CRISPR molecules directly to those blood stem cells and doesn't touch any other cells. Now, if you do it, you're doing it in a patient right now, but you could in theory, and in fact in practice, do it in what's called a germline way, which is in reproductive cells, so that you could make edits that would be inherited and you'd get sickle cell wiped out uh, from whole families and maybe from the human race. You've been a little, ca- very cautious, I should say, about inheritable or germline editing. Uh, Do you think we'll eventually get to the place where we say, let's make inheritable edits so nobody will have sickle cell, not even your children or grandchildren? Well, you're right that that could be an approach to be taken in the future. I think today the technology isn't there yet to use it safely in that fashion. And as you point out, there's a, a very profound ethical question to be addressed when we think about using CRISPR in a heritable fashion because it truly does change DNA 
in uh, you know future generations. So we have to be cautious, I think, about that type of use. And when would you uh, when would you say we should be willing to cross that line? Well, I think it would require several things. First of all, we have to be sure that technically and scientifically, the technology would be safe in that fashion. And we're certainly not there today. Secondly, I think we have to really uh, be quite transparent about the applications of heritable germline editing. How would we actually uh, decide who is going to use it that way and for what types of indications? So this is something that I've been advocating for several years in terms of thinking together about how we use the technology responsibly. Well, as you know far too well, a Chinese scientist, Hao Zhuangqi, who I think took a, in my book, took a selfie with you at Cold Spring Harbor Labs once, he made inheritable edits in twin girls that were born in China. And the Chinese cracked down on him for a while, but I notice he's now out of house arrest and back working in a lab again. Is it going to be possible to keep this genie in the bottle? Well, I think what's very important to note about that situation is that there was a true international backlash against his announcement in 2018, which was that he had used CRISPR in two human embryos that were transplanted into a woman to create a pregnancy. And I think internationally, it was uh, clearly the case that scientists rejected that type of use of CRISPR and decided that this should not be something to be encouraged. So I'm, I'm heartened by that effort. And I think that, uh, you know, there may be a time in the future when we decide that germline editing is appropriate, but we're not there today. And you've helped convene international groups on this issue, you and David Baltimore and a lot of people. Have the Chinese been cooperative on this? Yes, we've found that Chinese scientists have been quite engaged. They've been interested in, in working together on this. I think there's an appreciation that with a powerful tool like CRISPR, we have to work together to ensure that it's used safely in the future. Let me talk about a hypothetical, which is if you can do something like fix the one letter mutation eventually that causes sickle cell or do what you did with fetal cells, you could also enhance it. So I could decide that my blood cells will carry much more oxygen than ordinary people's. And eventually maybe my kid, I could design a kid that would have uh, blood cells that carried more oxygen, be great sprinters, be wonderful athletes. How do we, or should we, try to draw a line between what's treatment for a problem, a disease, and what's enhancement so people can design better kids? Well, I'd, I'd first like to point out that for the most part, it's not very easy to do the things that you mentioned today, or maybe not possible because we don't know the genetics well enough to control those kinds of traits. But as you're indicating, someday we will. And so we do have to be grappling with the challenge of how we use CRISPR in a safe and ethical fashion going forward. I don't have any easy answers to that, but I certainly think it requires open discussion and, and really international coordination. There's a lot of genetic diseases that we can deal with. And I guess the ones that CRISPR, this gene editing tool we've been talking about, could be most useful on are where they're just simple mutations. One of the simplest being sickle cell, which is just a one letter mutation. But what other uh, syndromes and uh, maladies 
are susceptible to gene editing now? Well, quite a few. There's a number of diseases that have a single gene that's known to be causative. And ones that come to mind are cystic fibrosis, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Huntington's disease, which is a neurodegenerative disease, and there are many others. So I think that there, there are great opportunities going forward with CRISPR if we can figure out this delivery challenge, which is how we get the CRISPR editing molecules into the right cells of the body. You just mentioned Huntington's, just a god-awful uh, disease, partly because you don't know you have it usually until after childbearing age. And so it just goes down in the families and it's just a death sentence. Would that be one of the first cases where we might say inheritable edits make moral sense? Well, I certainly think that would be the kind of situation where we might come to that conclusion if and when we get to a point where CRISPR is truly known to be safe to use in germ cells. So tell me about the other diseases. You say muscular dystrophy. Uh, are those ones, how would they be treated? Well, they would be treated using an editing approach that might either correct the disease-causing mutation or make a different change to the DNA that could mitigate disease. And what's exciting is that CRISPR is not only a tool that can be used as the therapeutic itself, but it can also be used as a research tool. And so what we're seeing right now in the field of scientific research is that more and more CRISPR is integrated into medical research projects where we can really understand the genetics of disease at a level that will make it possible one day to probably treat them using editing. What about Alzheimer's? Well, yeah, Alzheimer's is, you know, again, a devastating disease. It affects many families. I think one thing to consider there is that as we understand better the genes that make any of us susceptible, to a disease like Alzheimer's, it may in the future be possible to provide preventive treatment. In other words, editing that would provide protective genes against uh, a disease like Alzheimer's. And I noticed there were uh, some experiments maybe done at Penn, correct me if I'm wrong, involving the eye. Uh, why is that an organ that uh, we can edit more easily and what could be done there? Well, the eye and actually the liver as well are two organs where delivery of CRISPR molecules or, or other kinds of molecules is relatively easier than other parts of the body. And for that reason, it's attractive to try to treat genetic eye diseases or liver diseases using the CRISPR technology because we have strategies today that allow delivery into those organs. I noticed that you've been working quite a bit on the microbiome. Uh, those of us who maybe eat Greek yogurt are trying to figure out what, what, what is the microbiome. Tell me what it is and why CRISPR could be useful. Well, we're all, all trying to figure out the microbiome, Walter, and also how it connects to human health and disease. But there's increasing evidence that the bacteria that live in our bodies and actually in our environment as well have an enormous influence on our health and also our susceptibility to, to disease. So what we're doing today with the uh, CRISPR technology here at the Innovative Genomics Institute is we're using it to make changes, targeted changes to the microbes that populate the human gut to reduce disease susceptibility. And we hope one day to actually provide pro disease protection. 
You've said that before we encounter a whole lot of CRISPR technologies in our doctor's office, we're going to encounter it a lot more on our food plate. Tell me what's happening in the field of agriculture with gene editing. Well, gene editing will have a huge impact in agriculture, no, no question. And the reason is that it essentially gives plant breeders a tool for making precise changes in plants without introducing a lot of other alterations to genes that don't need changing. And as a result, we have now the way to change plants to provide drought resistance, to increase nutritional value, even to increase yield of crops. And all of these things are already happening using CRISPR. I think, you know, this will raise questions about, you know, how we regulate or don't regulate that kind of use of CRISPR. And that's, a, again, a very active area of discussion currently. And people talk about genetically modified organisms and GMOs and how they're against them. Are they dangerous uh, if, you, if you edit the genes of plants and animals we eat? Well, let's think about it. Everything we eat is genetically modified going back thousands of years because humans have been breeding plants for, you know, as long as we've had agriculture. And as a result, everything that we consume has modified genes. What CRISPR does is simply gives us the tools to make those changes precisely rather than randomly as is currently done. So they could be safer, actually. I feel they could, yes. One of the disheartening things that happened with COVID was, well, one of the great things was we found all sorts of ways to treat it with, you know, with science and vaccines. But then there was a backlash, people afraid of the science or people skeptical about it. Uh, one of the reasons I think you cooperated with me on the book I wrote was we wanted to explain exactly how the science works so people wouldn't be as mystified or afraid of it. Do you think we have to do better communications now that there's been, I think, an undercurrent of anti-science backlash in this country? Well, I think it's incredibly important to explain what science is going on, um, how taxpayer money is used to support research and what benefit it provides to society. I think we maybe we scientists haven't done as good of a job as we should have over the past few decades of explaining that. And um, I, I think it's maybe even more important now with the uh, social media and the rapidity with which misinformation can flood uh, the internet, for example. We really need to be sure that we're putting out there uh, real information, real data that's trustworthy so that people know where to get information they can, they can count on. Dr. Jennifer Doudna, thank you once again for being with us. Thank you, Walter. And that's it for now. Thank you and goodbye from London. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.